the future this week. Sydney Business Insights. Do we introduce ourselves? I'm Sandra Peter. I'm Kai Rima. Once a week, we're going to get together and talk about the business news of the week. There's a whole lot I can talk about. Okay, let's do this. Today in the future this week, road bikes, Amazon Whole Foods and the exorcism of Uber. I'm Sandra Peter. I'm the director of Sydney Business Insights. I'm Kai Rima. I'm professor here at the business school. I'm also the leader of the digital disruption research group. Hello. The future this week is traveling this week. I'm going from Nanjing to Shanghai currently at 274 kilometers an hour. And Kai is joining us from Greece. Yes, I'm in Greece at a conference. And so this is a bit of an experiment. We're coming straight from the future to you this week. But we have a few short stories for you nonetheless. So, Sandra, what happened in the future this week? Rogue bikes. So we're going to talk about ride sharing. Bicycle sharing has been a phenomenon around the world since about 2007 when Paris had its first bike sharing scheme, ride sharing scheme, where private citizens can borrow bikes that the city would provide and ride them and then leave them in designated bays. And since then, it's been widespread around the world with places like San Francisco and London and Australia, Melbourne and Brisbane joining and also all of China joining in on the ride. But what we're talking about today is rogue bikes, so these private ride-sharing bicycle companies where private companies without discussion or coordination with the local government or with any other companies provide bikes around the world. So we're seeing this in San Francisco with companies like Blue Gogo that entered without a permit. And in China, where I am at the moment, they're very widely spread with companies like Ofo and Mobike. Mobike has got a million bikes since the beginning of this year alone. So the article that we're discussing this week is in broadsheet.com.au and it talks about Sydney. So Sydney gets its first bike sharing service next month, it says, and it's one that is fully smartphone controlled. So there's no docks, there's no chains, bikes will be anywhere in the city uh, where people leave them and you basically use your smartphone to find a bike to unlock the bike. It's all GPS tracked. It's all very convenient and it's launching soon. It's done by a graduate from the University of Technology and it's supposed to be one of many to follow. And that is one of the problems that are being discussed in the media at the moment is that this is really not something that is well planned or that is in accordance with city planning. This is just happening because private operators bringing these services in and we've seen in China that it can become very crowded in this space, literally. Yep. So in China, as you've mentioned, we're seeing these bike sharing schemes that are dockless, unlike the ones that you would have around Europe, where you have to return the bike to a specific docking station. In China, the non-official bikes that are being shared only require the app, as you mentioned, that reads a QR code on the back of the bicycle, you get messaged a combination and then you unlock the bike, you ride it to wherever you want it, and then you just drop it wherever on the side of the road. Now, what's happened with this is that, of course, bikes are no longer equally distributed around the cities. So you have areas around the CBDs or around tourist areas where bikes are clogging the areas. And also you have quite a few vacant lots where 
thousands and thousands of these bikes are being dumped by nobody knows who yet. Probably the moped drivers who are losing business because of the bike sharing schemes because people no longer rent them for short trips that they used to use them for. So this raises a number of questions for us overall. First is around the financial viability of these bike sharing schemes. So in terms of financial viability in the US, for instance, in San Francisco for these bike shares, and this will be true for Australia as well, in order for them to break even, they would need about four rides a day for every single bike. And they would have to last for at least a couple of years to be financially viable, which at the moment is not necessarily something that we're seeing happen, especially with the numbers of these companies that are coming up. Second issue is in cities around China, and let's not forget that 13 of the 15 largest bike-sharing cities are in China. So, for instance, Hangzhou, which is about an hour from Shanghai, is just slightly larger than London, and London is one of the successful bike-sharing cities in Europe. So, slightly bigger than London, but it has five times as many bikes as London. However, they've got quite big problems with user education. So where do you leave the bikes? And people leave them behind locked doors or just leave them on the side of the road where they interfere with pedestrian traffic or other kinds of traffic. So the government is spending quite a bit of money on user education, for instance, painting bays where people would leave the bikes so that they don't interfere with the pedestrian traffic or with car traffic for that matter, so that they do not break the bikes. So the savings that you would get in cities like Copenhagen, the savings from people using the bikes that would pay for the infrastructure and everything else, is not really returned in the same way in these cities. So there are some questions about the viability of all of this, whether those private operators can actually break even. And let's not forget that there's cost involved. So these companies have to employ people who fix the bikes, who collect bikes and redistribute them when people leave them in undesirable places. And the question is then, can those jobs be any good and be above the minimum wage? And does this all work out? And the comparison that one of the articles makes is between city-run schemes and the private operators. So those city-run schemes, they're not exactly new. In some cities like Paris, they've existed for a decade now, and they're actually quite successful. So the article makes the point that integrating ride-sharing into city planning and treating them as an infrastructure that allows cities to improve the quality of life across its various suburbs is something that can be really quite desirable. It can also be a scheme to create jobs in low-income areas. So it can be something that is really benefiting the community. And the point that is being made is that rogue operators, private operators, can get in the way of this uh, goal of using bike sharing as a way for social good because they might not be interested to distribute bikes in areas where they might be most needed. In low-income areas, they might actually be only interested in putting them in the CBD, high-income areas where professionals will use them for short rides. High tourist areas. And in those areas, we might see a glut of those operators and then a lot of competition, which will serve no one in the end. So the article raises the point that really this should be something that is being coordinated with the cities because it might also lead to just having lots of bikes in places where they just clog up walkways and things like that. So what are we going to do about this? 
So it will be interesting to see because, as we mentioned before, Blue Gogo, which was one of the Chinese companies, had controversially started operations in San Francisco without this official permission. And Mobike, which is another company, is targeting London, where we already have bike sharing schemes and places like Birmingham and Manchester. And I think Ofo is on its way to Cambridge. So it will be interesting to see the interplay and whether eventually these bike sharing companies do start working with the government. So we've seen some strides in that respect with companies like Mobike actually trying to implement a credit system where you get deducted points if you damage the bike or if you dump it in a location that is inappropriate and so on to try to link the price of renting that bike to your quality as a rider of the bike. But it's slow progress at the moment. So there's no doubt that bikes are important part of the puzzle in solving the transport problems in large cities. And I think Australian cities, Sydney in particular, are in dire need of solutions. And I'm also very fond of bikes. I spend a lot of my time in Münster in Germany, which is very much a bike city where on average every citizen of Münster has two point something bikes. So everyone has a good bike and a work bike. Same for me. I moved from the Netherlands where everybody rides a bike and it's quite common sense. But there is, I think, a big difference for where we used to riding bikes to Australia, which is the helmet laws. None of yeah, these absolutely. companies so, actually offer the helmets. No, that's not quite true. There's one that I saw where the helmet will be in the basket on the bike and you unlock the helmet and can take it out of the basket when you unlock the bike with your smartphone app. So there's some solutions to that, but it's just one more thing that can break, that can get lost, and time will tell whether they that actually... That needs to fit your head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but also there's a bigger problem because in cities in the Netherlands or in Münster, for example, there's bike paths everywhere and bikes have the right of way at many intersections. And that's far from the case in Sydney, where you literally put your life on the line in places where people are just not used to bikes on the streets or just not tolerant of bikes in the street. And so it remains to be seen to what extent bikes will catch on in the Sydney CBD and the inner suburbs. But it's also an open question around what will be the best model for doing this. So... If we look at the terminology around this, people call it bike sharing, but it's really bike rental because those bikes are owned by a company and you just rent them and you pay for it on your smartphone. When we look at the car sharing or car rental, then of course we have traditional car rental companies, but we also have car sharing such as GoGet in Sydney, which is more like the communal models for bike sharing where blah, blah, car um, bikes, yeah, bikes are actually owned by a community. So it's a membership model. So people jointly own those bikes or cars, and then you can actually access those bikes. So it's a much less transactional, more of a relationship membership model. And it's also serving the members. So any proceeds go back to the membership pool. And so there's no external party who wants to make a profit from these services. So it's a very different model that is more around sharing and social good and city development. So it's an open question to what extent those private or rogue bike companies will have a role to play in solving this problem and putting more bikes on the streets. So while every individual company that comes in can argue that, yes, putting more bikes on the street is actually a good thing at this point in time, long term, having a lot of these companies stream into the market might actually be counterproductive. Long term to be successful and equitable, people from all areas, both high income and low income, 
neighborhoods must be able to find a safe bike and a high quality bike and have sufficient coverage to be able to use it for transport at a cost that is actually not prohibitive. By and large, we think this is an interesting case of smartphone technology, digital technology, uh, trying to help solve an important transport problem. And of course, these transport problems need solving and bikes will be an important component, but the jury is still out on which model is the best one. So our next story for this week is Amazon buying Whole Foods for $13.7 billion. This was the big news that's come out earlier this week where the online retail giant Amazon is buying Whole Foods. And we've got an article in BBC pretty much outlining that Amazon is now going into traditional retailing by buying Whole Foods. Whole Foods, of course, was a pioneer in doing natural and organic foods and has started out of the U.S., out of Texas, and it's got now a few hundred stores across the U.S. and Canada and the U.K., and it's employing almost 100,000 people. So this is a big deal, not just because it made news in almost every a media literally outlet. literally big deal. Yes, a literally big deal in terms of dollar value. It has really set the internet uh, alive. There's a lot of memes on Twitter, quite hilarious, really. People commenting on, you know, I just spent $14 billion at Whole Foods and all I got was a <laughs> bottle of almond milk. So commenting on the fact that Amazon is buying a very high-priced retailer there. But there's a bigger story to this, right, in the development of an online retailer buying one of the well-known, so to speak, offline retail brands. So... The question here is, first of all, why is this happening? So why did Amazon go and buy really what is one of by far their largest acquisition yet? So Whole Foods, 14 billions, and the next one down would be probably something like Zappos or Alexa, all of which are a billion or under. So very sizable investment in an area where they have made earlier strides, things like Amazon Fresh um, and opening pickup stores in Seattle and so on. Yeah, so for many, this is the growing up of e-commerce, of online retail, which means we can just scrap the online. Amazon is now a retailer. Their competition is no longer other e-commerce companies. It's now Walmart. It's now the biggest retailers in the world in any market that they engage in. It's a signal that, yes, this is starting in the US, but we're coming for other retailers in other markets as well. So Amazon for quite a while has had the mission of anything you might want to buy online, they will have it. And now they've moved towards Earth's most customer-centric company. So first, this move really comes at the end of repeated moves by online service providers. And really, Amazon is a service provider rather than a retailer. And on the other hand, moves by companies like Walmart and even Whole Foods of doing large-scale technology investment to try to meet somewhere in the middle, to try to create these hybrids that would exist in the online space as well as in real spaces. Yeah, so it's finally the doing away with the distinction between online and offline. So it's signaling that any retailer going forward will have to be in both spaces and that they're really blending. And so Amazon is filling a gap in its portfolio because they were able to compete with Walmart in every aspect other than food. And so Whole Foods is a first step in filling that gap and becoming a full range retailer. 
So this can also be seen as a turning point really for the economics of these major industries where there really is one winner takes it all and something the size of Amazon with now Whole Foods has such positive returns to scale that there really is no competition. On the other hand, for Amazon, this is also the moment to really acquire another customer. So we can think of Whole Foods as really a customer for Amazon because what Amazon does is about 40% of sales on Amazon are really by third-party retailers and are fulfilled by Amazon but are not directly sold by Amazon. So you can think of Whole Foods as just another customer that now Amazon has added to this ever-growing number of retailers. And you can think of this as the starting point for Amazon where Amazon could add, for instance, home delivery because right now it has acquired Whole Foods but it could move more into home delivery. It could also become a supplier, for instance, for restaurants or other things. But really what it has managed to do is to get access to customers who would be doing their grocery shopping elsewhere. And now the problem with grocery shopping is that if it makes up almost a quarter of what we spend our money on, then this would be a huge problem for Amazon in the long run because these customers could be swayed by other organizations, such as Whole Foods, for instance, trying to move into that space and then adding a whole other range of services. Yeah, so the point is that when we're going out shopping, so every opportunity to shop and spend money, most of those opportunities relate to grocery shopping. So if you're going to Walmart or places where you do your grocery shopping, they basically have access to the customer. So they have then the opportunity to upsell them with other things that are non-food items. And we see this with Aldi doing this very successfully, adding non-food specials every week to their food shopping. So really, this is about access to customers more so than adding the extra income from grocery shopping, which Let's face it, grocery shopping has razor thin margins. So it's not for the actual profit that they make from grocery shopping alone. It's really the bigger picture that they're after, the contact with the customer and the creation of opportunities to sell to the customers. And we see, indeed, you brought up Aldi. We do see this as already signaling to the market that winner takes it all proposition that we discussed earlier might be a real threat. So on the day that this deal was announced, it pretty much wiped $22 billion from other retail grocers in the U.S. and it added about $3 billion worth to Whole Foods, which really makes it worth it now. Yeah, absolutely. So to wrap this story up, we also want to point out that this is part of a bigger picture phenomenon whereby the distinctions between online and offline, between new economy, old economy, between innovative business models and the more traditional business models are being blurred. And we see this in the media industry, in entertainment. There was another article in Wired this week talking about how Netflix is becoming more like HBO, going into programming and having to deal with the mixed success of some of their TV series. So really what we're seeing is the growing up of digital and the way in which digital is becoming the new normal across a range of industries. And indeed, Amazon might be on its way to becoming the first trillion dollar company. So speaking of growing up, the last story is about Uber finally outgrowing its startup bro culture with the resignation of its CEO, Travis Kalanick. This has come at the end of a very long line of scandals and problems for Uber that have stemmed out of a range of issues, whether it was hiring practices or 
sexual harassment, discrimination, not treating their rival partners as they should, not cooperating with local cities and local governments and so on. So really a range of scandals and breaking of the law. So Travis resigning after he had decided to take a break to rethink Uber and Uber 2.0 and himself 2.0 has come after a period when Uber really had an almost unchecked power in its founder and basically the ability to decide. And let's remember Uber is now worth 60 or 70 billion dollars to really unchecked power to decide what he wants the company to do and how he wants to achieve what he wants to achieve. And the interesting thing is that regardless of how many bad things we have read about Uber in the media and that this is not a new story, so we've seen these stories late last year and all the way this year just coming up one after another, really people haven't been unsubscribing from Uber. They've still been using the service and overall the company has still been doing quite well. So the question that we want to ask here, I think, is really how come that We know all of these things. We disagree with everything that has happened here, whether it's the morality of it or the economics of it and so on and so forth, but still choose to use the service. So while there was recently a couple of articles that basically made the point that many people don't care about all these scandals as long as Uber is successful, I think we finally reached a tipping point where those problems could no longer be ignored, where even the most stoic investors had to face up with reality that the culture at Uber is counterproductive, what they do is counterproductive, and that this is really not the way in which a company should be run. And so on the back of this, commentary has changed a lot. And there was an article in Bloomberg which basically made the point that every one of us using Uber, ignoring Uber, or even the media commenting on Uber is to blame for what has happened. That this is really something that we can't just externalize. We can't just turn around and say, oh, look at Uber, they're so terrible. So the point is that it's really on all of us who have been using Uber for its convenience and its simplicity, that we're all complicit in creating the monster that Uber has become and that Therefore, we all have a role to play in humanizing this monster and and trying to uh, tame the monster. And there was some strong language being used in, in one of the articles, right? Yes, indeed. Time magazine mentioned the Holder report, which was looking into all the problems that Uber had internally. And it mentioned that the Holder report in the end didn't recommend reform as much as it recommended exorcism, uh, which is pretty much what we've seen now with Travis resigning. Yeah, so some strong language being used finally in recognition of what has become an untenable situation in a company that for a long time was the poster child of Silicon Valley innovation that has fallen from grace, but that at the same time has become an exemplar and an archetype for a startup culture gone wrong, really, the dark side of the pressure cooker environment that is Silicon Valley and the anything it takes attitude to grow, to win, to break into markets and to outsmart or in that case, basically cheat your competitors out of the market. 
So I think it is important indeed to point the finger not just at Uber, but at all the other stakeholders in this. So if we think about the press in general, we tend to glorify technology and glorify disruption. And Uber indeed, as you mentioned, was the poster child for disruption. We also tend to glorify the CEOs that are pushing the envelope. So think about not just Travis, but people like Steve Jobs earlier that eventually changed. But in the beginning, they were CEOs who, who rocked the boat, who challenged the established status quo. Aside from the press, we also see investors who really have given unchecked power, this founder-friendly investment, as they're called, where sort of the economics of it really trump the morality of it. And we, the users of the service, are somewhat to blame as well. I used Uber quite extensively. And much like we use the iPhones that might be made in China, where we don't tend to care about the conditions under which they are made or the wages that are paid to the people making them, a similar situation we see in the case of Uber. So it's really a bigger picture problem rather than just one company or one CEO. So Sandra, this has been an interesting experiment, you traveling at 270 kilometers an hour somewhere in China and me being on a Greek island is really pushing the envelope um, of what you can do with modern technology and recording a podcast. And we hope you will enjoy whatever we could master here at a distance doing this podcast. And that goes to show you that you can do all kinds of shit with technology these days. And as always, but we, we can't want to finish, finish this without the one segment, no. can we? That's right. So we will finish this with this. So the robot of the week is Japanese sumo bots, and they are hilarious. Two bots fighting it out in a makeshift sumo ring in front of an audience and camera. And those little things, boy, they are fast. So much like you would watch two large men in little loincloths, imagine two robots doing the complete opposite, trying to go at this at lightning fast speeds and with no loincloths. So much like Andrew Collins, who wrote this article, the two of us are still giggling at the spastic violence in the corner of our screen, just watching these little monsters go at each other. Yeah, so you really need to watch this video and we're posting the link in the show notes. And that's all we have time for. Thanks for being part of this experiment at The Future This Week. Thank you for listening. This was The Future This Week, brought to you by Sydney Business Insights and the Digital Disruption Research Group. You can subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us online on Twitter and on Flipboard. If you have any news you want us to discuss, please send them to sbi at sydney.edu.au.